Welcome to the podcast. Over the past few months, anti-racism protests have taken place across Canada and indeed the world. Here, the RCMP has been called in to address systemic racism in its ranks. The Toronto Raptors wore jerseys emblazoned with messages inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement. And I asked the Minister of Diversity and Inclusion if the government will commit to applying a race-based lens and analysis on all legislation. Senator, these are really important discussions to be having about police brutality, about systemic racism. It's really, to me, unconscionable how you know people, just because of the color of their skin, get treated differently by various institutions across Canada. And I also think, though, that we need to have a discussion about diversity, the broader discussion about diversity, diversity in our workforce, diversity on our corporate boards, diversity in the charitable sector and nonprofits, because diversity is important. It not only leads to uh, better you know, decisions being made, but it le actually leads to better outcomes by business businesses. So it's not only the right thing to do, but it's actually a more diverse workforce is a successful workforce. You're so right, Paul, and I have uh, for a long time been part of these discussions to make organizations, institutions, whether they're public or private, more diverse and welcoming and inclusive. But I'm really happy today to speak with Hamlin Grange and Dia Khanna, who have enormous depth and experience through their work in the field and on the ground. And we had a chat with them and it was a really interesting discussion. Their experience in the fields of diversity, equity and inclusion are invaluable resources. And they both have a wealth of knowledge on how to address systemic racism and create diverse organizations. Let's listen to their interview. So in all this talk about the coronavirus, I'm also mindful that there is another virus that is not new. It's been around for generations. Uh, and this is the virus of racism. Um, and apparently we are no closer to finding a vaccine today than those who tried earlier on. The death of George Floyd has left a mark on people and voices of protest are growing. And, you know, we see on television how athletes boycott games, protests are happening around the world, businesses and institutions are responding in different ways, but they are responding. Even in the Senate, the storied institution that I'm a member of, we had a precedent setting debate on racism. Today, to join us in this conversation, I have two wonderful people. Hamlin Grange and Leah Khanna, both are seasoned professionals on how to recognize racism, how to address it in a corporate or an, at an institutional level. Both of them have great ideas and experience on how to move the needle on this, what I would call a particularly wicked problem. Both are Canadian, although Dia now lives in the United States. And I would say one is young and one is younger. And that is also an important perspective to us. So let me start with a question to both of you and, and please answer as you feel. There are many prominent voices on both sides of the border who have denied the existence of systemic racism. I, I wonder what your perspective on this denial is. And I wonder if for our listeners, you can provide a very specific, understandable example 
of how systemic racism actually works. Let me start with you, Dia. Yeah, thank you very much, Senator, for the question. The way systemic racism works is that it is is that it is deeply embedded in institutions and organizations, and it's been normalized to some sense. So if we think about racism as a combination of power and prejudice, how that manifests is often different. So we have it sometimes individually manifested, but then we also have it manifested in organizations and in institutions. So to those who may benefit from systemic racism, there may be a denial, a collective denial, but to those of us who experience it, there's definitely a conversation that needs to be had. And it's also important who leads that conversation, who's at the forefront of leading this conversation that systemic racism actually exists. Um, Hamlin, mm -hmm. we like to think in Canada that, and we'll get to the question of Canadian smugness a little later, we like to think in Canada, we're not the United States, but we have public leaders in this country who have also said systemic racism does not yeah. exist. Yeah. I Can know. you comment on that? Well, well, well obviously they're wrong. And, uh, and I think upon examination, further examination, these leaders uh, oftentimes come back uh, 24 hours or 48 hours later to walk back uh, their comments after being quote unquote informed uh, to the contrary, but you know, but I turn to the Ontario Human Rights Commission uh, in a way for I think a, a definition, a working definition uh, of systemic racism, and uh, the commission talks about uh, systemic racism as really consists of attitudes, patterns, or behavior and policies or practices that become part or embedded as part of the social or administrative structures or fabric within organizations. And, and it creates or perpetuates this, uh, you know, these positions of relative disadvantage to certain groups or individuals. I kind of also like what uh, Senator uh, Murray Sinclair had to say. It's, you know, Senator Sinclair chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he, he put it quite succinctly, I thought. He says, systemic racism is when the system itself is based upon and founded upon racist beliefs and philosophies and thinking and has put in place policies and practices that literally and this is an important piece i think we need to understand it literally forces even the non-racist to act in a racist way and, hmm. and 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 you know and and i think if you look at it in those terms uh people can benefit from it uh benefit from racism within organizations and not even realize that they're actually benefiting from it and so individuals can, can, can be blind to the reality of it because they're benefiting from a structure that's set up to benefit them to begin with. And it's mm -hmm. like a fish in water, right? It's like a fish in water. You don't realize you're in the water until you're out of the water, okay? And that's how systemic racism works. You're embedded in it. You become part of it. You don't realize you're part of it. So when I came to Canada in 1981 and started to look for a job, I was faced with uh, the, 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 for me, one of the most uh, telling examples of systemic racism. I didn't recognize it as such. I thought that was the norm. I thought that's what people in Canada did, which is they asked me, where is your Canadian work experience? And we cannot, in the end, I couldn't be hired uh, because I had no Canadian work experience. Um, of course, that no longer exists, but would you, 
would you agree that that is uh, an excellent example of how people may not be racist in themselves, but when they accept these norms and conditions, they are part of the systemic racism context. Dia, yeah, would exactly. yeah, yeah, that's true. I agree with that. Yeah, go ahead, Dia. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, this is a very common problem that we even face in the US where you come and, you know, often people come as spouses to people that are working here and they aren't recognized. They don't even have visas to work. And you're right, it's about recognizing it uh, by taking a step back and saying, hey, just as you said, Hamlet, it's so deeply embedded and often we benefit from it. So when you're on the other side and you're the one that has the job, perhaps because you've had some form of Canadian or U.S. experience, you don't tend, maybe there's a tendency to not see yourself as benefiting from it. But as a fish swimming in water, uh, you really have to take a look at it. We need to collectively speak about this and and identify what these, where these systems of racism are truly embedded. And you know what's insidious about this though, uh, mm -hmm. Ratna, is that even the individuals who are victims yep. of systemic racism can be complicit in maintaining those structures. Can you give me an example of that? Well, you know, and you can see it playing out in so many ways where you, where, where individuals, you know, let's talk about the black-brown dichotomy that's taking place and nobody wants to talk about it, but it is yep. real, okay? Um, brown people um, will oftentimes uh, say, well, you know, hey, you know, we're, we're not the problem, it's black people's problem. Or white people will say, oh, we're very comfortable because brown people aren't as uh, aggressive, perhaps, as black people. Uh, and we can see it playing out in so many situations where uh, even individuals who are victims of the system can be complicit in that system because they're silent. There's a wonderful book called uh, uh, Good White People by Shannon Sullivan. And she talks about good white people are, the, are, 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 are folks who will never use the N-word. Um, they're, they're, they're tolerant. They say they're colorblind. They're all of those things. Bad white people are the folks who join the Klan. Bad white people are the folks who are uh, who join white supremacist organizations, uh, but not realizing at times that good white people, they become complicit in the system because they remain silent. Mm -hmm. They remain blind mm -hmm. to the reality of systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And the same can go, can, the same can occur for even individuals who are black or mm -hmm. even brown can be complicit because they remain silent. And so, so that's the insidious nature of systemic racism. So this conversation has talked, the and Hamlin, both of you have, have referred to people who benefit from the system as is. Um, let's uh, unpack the word white privilege a bit. Yeah. Uh, it's become a little bit more normalized, I would say, in the circles I move in. It's okay to use that language. Maybe two years ago, it was, it was very not okay to use that language. Um, how do we further normalize this notion of white privilege, whether or not you have individually participated in setting up systemic structures, you still benefit from it because you're part of the of, of the context of racism. Um, how do we make this a little bit more normal and acceptable for white people? Yeah, I would say the key white privilege is also understanding that it's historical and contemporary and it, it's it's a privilege that's been afforded to white people. It doesn't mean that white people haven't worked hard. It means that there is an advantage 
that we see through examples of education, home ownership, uh, jobs, and so on and so forth, even areas that are policed and discrimination. And uh, here in the US, the school to prison pipeline, for example, redlining, Jim Crow. So really talking about it as something that is historical and is continued continues to be contemporary. So it's a continuum and how this is privilege that we, we have to recognize is something that is actually global as well. It's not just limited to, to US and Canada. So the ease with which we talk about white privilege can actually allow us to do the work to dismantle white privilege. Hamlin, I'm curious on your thoughts on this as well. Well, you know, I think you're, I think you're so right. Uh, and, and to your point, you know, it, um, I think first and foremost, there needs to be a recognition and an acknowledging that white is a race. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that is problematic for a lot of white people. The work that I do, sometimes I do workshops and I go around a room and I ask people to identify their race. Black people, brown people, people of indigenous background, other people, they will readily say, yeah, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. White people will say, oh, well, I'm Canadian. <laughs> There's a discomfort <laughs> with saying white is a race. White is indeed a race. And with that come certain privileges, okay? And certain disadvantages as well, okay? And just like black is a race, brings with certain privileges, certain disadvantages, all right? So first and foremost, I think there needs to be an acknowledgement and recognition that white is a race. And Sullivan talks about that in her book, Good White People, okay? Uh, in White Fragility, uh, Robin DiAngelo talks about that. There needs to be an acknowledgement, first and foremost. Once that takes place, then we start looking through the lens of what do those privileges allow us then if we see white as normative? Mm. Let's take a look at the television programs you see, okay? It's white people who have the best friend who happens to be black, but it's the white person who's having the romantic relationship, <laughs> okay? It's the white people that are going on having these great adventures. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I tweeted out something today uh, where uh, there's a magazine called uh, Great Canadian Adventures. Uh, it's a tourism publication. And, and I looked through it and I, and I was thumbing through it and I said, there's something wrong with this publication. And mm. every single image in that publication, white people, white people having fun, white people um, going on vacation, white people having great adventures in the outdoors, not a single person of color. Now, how mm. could that possibly happen in today's world in Ontario? <laughs> That's white privilege. <laughs> That's what it because looks like. Because brown and black people are doing the work uh you know we'll, we'll get to that a little later but yeah uh what we are seeing certainly in the united states and in canada you know uh, there is there seems to be uh an anger and a response and people are taking to the streets and they want answers and they want to end racism we've seen this before and I want to get the US and the Canadian perspective. Does it feel different this time? Is it going to make any difference? Let's this start feels, with Canada. Yeah, yeah, this feels different to me, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I'm young enough, uh, thank you, Ratana. I'm young <laughs> enough, <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of the, you know, I, I sort of, you know, a child coming out of this sort of the civil rights movement, but certainly seeing that, um, uh, you know, Martin Luther King was killed in 1968. I was in grade six, but I knew something monumental had happened, okay? Uh, and see the changes taking place. 
I think something is different this time. Um, and I think what has caused the difference has been the pandemic. And mm. uh, I, I started to refer to the, to the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, as the, the reckoning virus. That's why I was calling it at the beginning, because what it has done, COVID-19 and this pandemic, it has exposed a soft underbelly of so many of our institutions. OK, how we treat our elderly, for example. All right. The criminal justice system and obviously racism. And it's in that environment that we saw the public execution of George Floyd. Now, there were a lot of George Floyds before George Floyd. OK, I think a lot of people forget this or seem to you know, conveniently forget that. And there are a lot of George Floyds after. What was different now is that there was a sense of vulnerability that in general people had during because of COVID and their their attentions were fixed on this because they weren't working, they were at home mm. <laughs> and they were uber focused on this thing. And I think it all sort of came to a head. Uh, so I think this is different in that way. Um, will it be sustainable over time? Will we still have the same degree of angst uh, that that we having now? You begin to see it petering down, but I still believe that something different has happened here. And, uh, and I think it's, this is a moment of opportunity for us to capitalize on that for change. And this is where leadership comes in. But I'll, I'll, I'll throw it back to, uh, to Diane. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree, uh, Hamlin. I, I think that there's something fundamentally different, um, though I am a little bit younger, so I wasn't around during um, the time that you were describing in grade six. But uh, what I find different is also the social media has led to uh, you know Black Lives Matter movements globally, we're seeing this globally, and there's a solidarity there that we're experiencing. But what I'm interested in, in uh, acknowledging is how we move from this awareness to actual accountability. And, and what I love that you said right there was, now we see what rests in the hands of, of leaders. And by leaders, we use this term loosely because we're also referring to people like you and I who are leading these conversations. So not necessarily people in positions of of power, but those that are leading uh, this discussion to a position of accountability and, and action. So how do we shift from that awareness into that next stage? And I think that is yet to be seen. I think we're seeing some of the trickle down effects into different institutions and systems, uh, definitely in Hollywood and sports and in tech to some extent. But is it going to continue or is it going to to stop. So really hoping that um, this goes into that next stage. Is there yeah. some sort of building blocks that that the movement can continue? And, and you both touched on it in the sense of sustainability, right? You know, um, obviously there wasn't, you know, everyone was fixated on this in June. Um, you know, then the summer hits, you know, people are going outside because COVID, you know, people are allowed to, to, to go about their more normal daily lives. Um, I was particularly struck how a lot of the NBA players and then also that went into the NHL and other sports to say, no, no, keep this on the public's attention. Keep, you know, focus on this. Uh, we still have protests in, in cities that are going on. Um, so is there certain building blocks that can be put in place or built upon to continue that sustainability and the momentum going forward um, that you see as, as, as really something that can be uh, you know, allow this movement to really take shape for the next number of years to really break down the barriers and the systemic racism that does exist. Yep. 
I definitely think there is. Um, and, uh, you know, the I, I, I am really urging organizations that 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 actually contact me about work uh, to really start thinking about transformative systemic change. Mm. Um, it's not about, you know, uh, doing one off unconscious bias training, mm. yeah. uh, you know, and everybody wants to do unconscious bias training uh, or come in and do a an awareness uh, anti uh, anti black racism workshop or something like that. Yeah. We need to start dismantling systems. Um, and uh, because, you know, uh, we know, you know, the perfectly designed systems is designed to get the results that it gets. Mm. And we, we are seeing the results of the system that's been created. We're seeing racism, intolerance, you know, we've seen homophobia, we've seen all of those things. Now, we need to change those systems. We need to change the components of those systems. And I think the building blocks that you talk about, Paul, you know, it's really about looking at um, what can we do uh, individually and organizationally to, to reset, to realign our priorities in terms of what we want to see as a world, as a society, as our families? Um, and the building blocks, I think, begins with, with each of us. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal, internalized kind of process that we go through. Acknowledge that there is indeed a problem and then decide what you're going to do in your own way to do it and then push that out. That's a start. Uh, you know, we are in a polarized state right now. Okay, there's polarization all over the place. It's an us versus them. Right mm -hmm. now. Okay, and we need to almost need to come back to a point of common ground where we begin to see that we are truly indeed this, in this to this to, together. And we need to come to that realization. But in the meantime, we need to also acknowledge that there's real pain and trauma that's going to Real pain and trauma, and we need to acknowledge that. So we got a lot of pieces to to to, uh, to to think about. I think. Let me let me situate this discussion within the context of how we have been transformed through this coronavirus uh, experience, uh, both in Canada and the U.S. So previously, uh, you know, uh, people of color in in low-paying jobs. In pers as personal support workers, as retail uh, 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 staff in in different uh, grocery shops, as we're working to stock the shelves and keep the daily line of supply to food available, the migrant farmers who pick and grow and bring the food to market, both in the United States and Canada. All of this has been thrown into sharp relief. And I'm of the belief, and I could be wrong, and this could be fleeting. I believe that at least in, in Canada, we have begun, we have a different appreciation of who is the essential worker. And that for most of the time, an essential worker is a person of color. Do you think this, um, and, and I, I, first of all, I'd like to find out uh, from you, Dia, whether you think that this awakening in Canada is shared in the United States or is the states still too polarized around some of these questions? Yeah, I think the narrative is is different in the US and in Canada around essential workers uh, because 
perhaps there's a politeness discourse in, in Canada. And I keep coming back to that. Having been in the U.S. for a couple of years now, it's something that's really been illuminated for me is how we speak about diversity and who our essential workers are. So in, in the U.S., we, we uh, have identified, yes, essential workers are predominantly people of color and Yes, we have the diversity, but are we? Is is the uh, decision making uh, power there? Is the is this positions of influence? And until we have diversity there in positions of leadership, positions, or even on at the front lines, are the people are they equipped with being able to influence policies and practices, which is what systemic racism is essentially about. Um, and if not, how can we make that shift? So if we have the appreciation for essential workers, how can we make the further shift to equip them with the power that they need to be able to influence those changes? And I think that in some way and form, Canada is at a different place in this conversation and, and, and it can start with dismantling this politeness discourse and saying, okay, yes, we have diversity. Yes, we have a mix of people, but is the mix of people that we have in Canada really equipped with decision-making authority? Can I just jump in quickly there just to say, it's interesting that you say that, Dia, because you know one of the things that became clear during COVID is that Canada doesn't track race-based data at all, at all. Yeah. right? So health yeah. outcomes, uh, uh, governance really, I mean, they're starting to with businesses, but that just came and essentially came into force in January this year that we don't have to get into the, the bill that did it, but charities and nonprofits don't, there's no data there on diversity, on governance. So it's yeah. an interesting that in Canada, you know, in some ways we're actually farther behind in this discussion uh, because we don't have the data to 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 look into these uh, these issues. Oh no, that's such bang. You're so bang on on this, and uh, you know, and I would I would suggest, uh, Adia, that we are no further along this conversation than the U.S. is. Mm. Okay. Okay. I think I, I think we are this this polite discourse you talk about. Uh, mm. It's there. Um, we don't collect data because Canadians are very squeamish. Oh, well, let's not talk about race. Let's yeah. not talk about race. But we know what gets measured gets managed. Gets done, yeah. Okay, and gets done, to your point. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And we've been hesitant to do that uh, for whatever reason. Because, you know, it's a, we live in a, in a country that is steeped in minimization. We minimize differences. Minimization. Okay, we minimize yeah. differences. We're uncomfortable with differences. Yes. We want this commonality that we seek sometimes, but in doing that, we're not moving towards the equitable society that we, we see of ourselves as Canadians. And I think we need to move beyond minimization and move to that, that stage of acceptance where you recognize differences. You're comfortable with differences. You may not know what to do about it, but at least you're not minimizing those differences. And I think collecting race-based data is important. I know my mother came to this country in 1960, okay, from Jamaica, and she uh, left, uh, you know, her own business, solid middle-class family, and she came to this country. The only way she could have come to this country to clean people's houses and their toilets and their bathrooms. She was, you know, she came to the domestic worker program, all right. But then she, then she transitioned and became a nurse with the nursing homes. And the story she told me about, you know, caring for elderly white people in these nursing homes and being physically assaulted, slapped in the face because they didn't want to be touched by this black woman, okay? Okay. No, when you think about, when you think about the, the, the folks who have 
the bedrock of our, our healthcare system in, in, in this country, certainly in Ontario, the Filipino women, mm. the nurses, okay? Do we acknowledge those folks at the harbor that they do? No, we don't. We don't. What about those folks who come here from Jamaica and elsewhere to pick the fruit that we like to eat so much? Okay. And then we well, blame them for takeaway jobs. I mean, so we have a lot of way to go here. We're not that better than the US. And I think we can be very smug about it. Absolutely. Let's, you know, both of you have talked about politeness. And I want to ask you a question around the politeness of the word diversity. <laughs> uh, it's a polite word. Um, and I live in a city, and Bia, you were born in a city that celebrates diversity as its strength. And I've begun to wonder whether the language and concepts and celebration of diversity soft pedals racism. So, Bia, I mean, give me your, your what do you what do you think about? Um, this and and should we have the courage now to embrace new language for yeah a new absolutely time? I, i'm i'm so glad you asked this question because it's something i've been grappling with as a journalism student there would be a lot of emphasis on celebration of diverse stories and as a, a south asian woman i would often be tasked with going out and capturing this person's story and that person's story and and now I feel like uh, there's been a shift from, yes, we absolutely need the celebratory. I mean, this is part of what makes us a, you know, a diverse country if we're talking about Canada. However, we also need to move into um, <clears throat> the discussion of equitable outcomes. So if celebration is used as a curtain to not speak about what is really the underbelly of society, which is who has power, who has access, who has opportunity, then I think it's it's a mask and we really need to, uh, you know, put it aside and focus on the work that needs to be done. But I think you can have both. I think you can really have celebration. And, and throughout everything, even if we look at COVID, we take a step back. Throughout COVID, there are moments of celebration where we're learning how to work differently, where we're learning how to interact differently. And different cultures are doing this in different ways, seeing as, again, this is global. Um, however, it can never, I, I don't think it should ever be an excuse for the work that needs to be done in terms of equity. So I think that there's a shift that's happening, but it's an and and an or. Sorry, it's not an or, it's, it's an and. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Hamlin, just exploring this idea further, the idea of labels and definitions, and these are important. Uh, we use diversity uh, in Canada, we also use visible minorities, mm -hmm. uh, which doesn't actually get to the intersectionality or or the hierarchy of racism uh, mm -hmm. that is at play. Uh, and now we have new language. I don't know where it came from, but we are more and more in our vernacular using BIPOC. Yeah. Do you think it's time to, and this is a very Canadian question from a Canadian <laughs> legislator, do you think it's time to review the word visible minority and replace it with something else oh absolutely i mean visible minority has been this catch this catch-all phrase and this really came out of the abella report mm -hmm. uh, so you know so we're stuck we're stuck in the 1980s if in terms of thinking about uh you know the whole notion of of diversity multiculturalism uh, we're stuck there i think we need to move mm -hmm. forward uh, and visible minority sort of you know it's this it's this catch-all phrase that you know, it normalizes whiteness again. You see what I'm saying? 
think about this. Yeah. I mean, again, we come back to this whole notion of supremacy of whiteness. And people get uncomfortable when you say white supremacy because they look, they think of the KKK and of course it's burning. That's not what I'm talking about here. Mm. It's a normative <laughs> supremacy of whiteness. So it's a visible minority, visible from what? <laughs> you see? <laughs> so, so, so I think we really do need to revisit the language that we're using um, because when, the, when you say visible minorities, you're, you're losing. So, so what about black people? Mm. What about what about people? You know, you know. What about other people who are not black? Okay, who are you know who, who are, are South Asian? Who are people who are Chinese? Who are people who are Japanese? What about those people? They get all lumped into this thing called visible minorities. And I, I always find it kind of interesting. I went I went to school in the United States, and I left here to go to the United States. Uh, you know, uh, to university. Uh, as a young black man, uh, you know, full of vim, vigor, you know, and maybe a little bit angry at times. And I came back to Canada after graduating and uh, I left as a black man and I came back a visible minority. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and it struck me, I said, but what the heck yeah. is a visible minority? What is that? <laughs> what is that? So I think you're right. I think we need to revisit language. Let me ask Bia, because I know my reaction. You became a South Asian when you when you were born in Canada. Do yeah. do we have that terminology at all in any anywhere else in the world outside Canada? South Asian, which is a mix of God knows how many races and ethnicities. Yeah, I mean, even yeah. um, here in the U.S., we lump some Asian, and I think that itself is problematic because Asian is not a monolith. BIPOC is not a monolith. So to yeah. Hamlin's point, we need to. And and you're right. The term "visible minority" is also centering the whiteness. You're you're we're all all of a sudden lumped into something that we're not, and um, so we're not white. All of a sudden, we're all visible minorities. But it discredits everybody's individual experiences, and it's all of a sudden lumping it together. So yes, South Asian is it's it's a very uh, fluid term that I use when I'm in one place, but may not use when I'm in another. And personally, I'm grappling with what term I identify with. Uh, I, I love the term Desi. I wish we could. I love that. the term Desi, Desi too. Yeah, it's you know like black is a good word to describe. Right. Desi is a good word to describe. But you know maybe we'll start a movement here. It's time to change uh, employment <laughs> equity legislation with new language because mm. we are new times. Pierre, you wrote a piece with me which uh, I really enjoyed doing with you. We called it the seven deadly sins uh, to avoid when you're trying to address. Uh, uh, you know, diversity, anti-racism and all of that. Can you just pick one and, and tell me which one was your favorite one and which one you'd like to leave this audience with? Gosh, all of them. I thought they were all very intertwined. I thought one really built on the other, but I guess the one that really stood out was uh, not centering the dominant group. And in this case, we're talking about whiteness. And I think this has been the current of this conversation as we're speaking is, White is a race, as you said, Hamlin, and it doesn't, it's not the norm. It's not, so if this is, and and, and speaking as a brown woman, I think there's a great point here that there's a benefit that some people feel with a proximity to whiteness. And once we decenter the dominant group, once we decenter whiteness, which is the seventh sin that I believe we, we wrote about, then we bring in the centering of different groups and then we're not trying to proximate ourselves to something. Okay. Then we can actually do the work. So that would be my favorite. Mm-hmm. So 
Hamlin, you work a lot on this issue with institutions, with charities, with yeah. government. Um, can you reflect on the really important role of institutions in this discourse? Uh, pick an institution, any institution, uh, and, wow. and, and, and tell us what their role should be in this discourse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, OK, I think the two most important institutions uh, that have the greatest impact on our lives, media and the social justice system, and specifically the police. OK, mm -hmm. all right. I believe these two institutions, which quite frankly, are the most difficult institutions to change because they are what I call legacy institutions. OK, there's a culture within media, especially in the news media that mm -hmm. resists change and the same type of cultural uh, resistive kind of mentality exists within policing. And I'm not telling you anything if you don't know. We see it writ large. OK, and so if we can make change within those two institutions, I believe we can move mountains. Absolutely. I really, truly believe that. But it means that the media uh, and the law enforcement policing needs to take a real hard look at itself in an honest and, and, and critical way about looking at the system that exists and how it has um, negatively impacted people. It has caught it has it has caused people to die. OK, the way we cover stories, the stories mm -hmm. we don't cover that costs yeah. people's lives. OK, and it's it's obvious what happens in policing. People are people die as a result of bad policing. So those two institutions I think are really important for us to, mm -hmm. to tackle. And I'm really encouraged the conversations are taking place legislatively around police police reform. That's a good conversation. Okay. One can question whether or not uh, the right questions are being asked in terms of making those changes. And also they're talking about media as well. So mm -hmm. I think instinctively there's a recognition that these two institutions two very powerful institutions, institutions that have a long term impact on how we view our world and ourselves and each other. They need to change and it would have a greater impact, I think, on everything else. That's what I believe. And can it be simply just, you know, one of the things that, that I noticed uh, with, you know, especially in the media discourse uh, following a lot of this was that you know, uh, there was uh, arrays of, of, of voices from, you know, from different backgrounds saying that there needs to be more diversity in newsrooms, there needs to be more diversity uh, in storytelling, but simply can, you know, hiring, you know, more diverse people create that change that you're looking for? Or is it, or is it something more ingrained in, in the structure, as you said, in the, in the, the organization itself and the, maybe even the philosophies of, of these organizations, either journalism or or policing, that you know goes beyond just simply people uh, being of diverse backgrounds being hired, and and there needs to be more of a reckoning there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Andrea touched on it earlier, right? It's not simply about representation anymore. It's true inclusion. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's diversity. There's, you know, people talk about DNI, diversity inclusion. The I part of that paradigm. Okay is the most difficult part to do, true inclusion. Yeah. Diversity is easy. Just give me two of those, one of them, 3.5 of those, and we're good to go. Count the numbers. Put more dark and brown faces on television reading the news and you think you've done it. 
Yeah. Who's, who's behind the scenes? Who, yeah. who are the decision makers? That's the change. Okay. And, and what's the philosophy in driving what are cultures? We don't culture, right? Culture, values, traditions, beliefs, ways of doing things. That's, those are some of the aspects of culture. And it applies to organizational culture as well as national cultures. So how, what are we doing within organizations to change the way we do things, our beliefs, our traditions, even our very values? Until we get to that piece, we're just, we're just tinkering around the edges, to be honest about it. And we're just playing the diversity game of numbers and not true yeah. inclusion. I, I really uh, think uh, that the conversation has to move to that end of the of the of the needle if i may call it but i want to ask the uh, the question it's it's a difficult question for people who are brown like the and mm -hmm. me but mm -hmm. i'm at the place where you know no matter what racism my community has faced in this country and there there are books and books and books about racism against brown people against sikhs mm -hmm. against brown muslims and muslims in general but i recognize uh, that uh, my kids don't get stopped uh, in a car because they're black uh, i recognize uh, that the racism and oppression experienced by black and indigenous people is is at a they have suffered most from systemic racism in the country, but so have people of color. They may not be black and indigenous. How do we build an allyship around this? I mean, Hamlin, you described uh, the attitudes and reality of how brown people are perceived and how they possibly perceive themselves. Mm -hmm. How do we turn this into a, you know, we are different and so we experience racism differently to can we make common cause because it affects all of us? Yeah, I think that uh, you can experience racism and still benefit from systems of racism. And I think that some of the most important work that we do is within our own communities. So, <clears throat> excuse me, for uh, brown communities, it's essential that we speak about how we are also complicit in racism. And uh, there is a lot of anti-blackness in our communities. I, I'm going to come right out and say it. And yet the dialogue that we're having is not robust enough. Uh, there are pockets and there are people leading this conversation, but not to the extent that I would hope that we're having this conversation. And it's um, I wonder if we can do a, I, I do believe that we can do a much better job of identifying how we ourselves have been victims of racism, but how we also have been complicit in this, especially uh, when it comes to anti-blackness. We really, really need to do a lot of work in this. Uh, and colorism is, is a part of this as well, like in our own communities, how have we uh, historically uh, treated people with different skin tones and, 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 and you know, anti-blackness is, is essentially global. So um, there's a lot of work to be done here. A lot yeah. of work. Yeah. Well, you know, Dia, thank you so much for that. Because, you know, it's, it, is the un, it is the unspoken. Yeah. And I think we need to speak it. Absolutely. We need to say the words. We need to speak that. And, you know, um, you know, it's, someone gave a really great I was, I was doing some work with some leaders and they talked about one person talked about you know how we came together as an organization as a company to put up when COVID came they were so quick to move because 
you know, you know, you know, they, they came up with strategies and protocols to keep people safe because of health reasons. And says, why can't we do that mm-hmm. of, 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 around, around, around racism, systemic racism? I said, the one thing that it had in common, everybody saw COVID as the enemy. It was a common enemy. Regardless of who we are, we could get COVID. What if organizations took that approach and saw systemic racism as a disease? Absolutely. And we can yes. all agree that we can be infected by it and we can mm-hmm. die from this thing. We would actually move heaven and earth to put systems in place to protect ourselves from it. And it's a mind shift. We need to create a different mindset here. Okay. And I think this is where I think brown and black people, okay, and other racialized individuals, groups need to come together to say that we are commonly, we could be commonly infected by this disease. Yeah. And maybe we should get together and come up with some protocols that can that can defeat this enemy because it is an enemy. Absolutely. It is an enemy, yeah. I, I think that's a, a wonderful note of forward thinking and yeah. hope to end this conversation because I know I could carry it on forever and ever, but the time is short. Um, and I'm all that leaves for me to say is thank you, Dia and Hamlin, for your insights. They have been incredibly useful. Thank you to the listeners. And if you have any questions uh, to ask about uh, this conversation, please do write to me by Twitter or by email. I'm, I actually do respond to my email and we would love to hear from you not just about this uh, uh, conversation, but about others you'd like to have us host. So thank you very much for helping us move the needle today.